to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. My guest today is Daniel Howell. Daniel is one of the world's most popular entertainers. He has over 6 million YouTube subscribers, and his videos have gained over 1 billion views. He hosts an award-winning BBC Radio One show, and he's written several New York Times bestselling books, including The Amazing Book is Not on Fire and Dan and Phil Go Outside. He's known for his self-deprecating and sarcastic sense of humor. But his latest book isn't funny. It tackles the subject of mental health, something he struggled with. And now he's sharing practical coping skills that can help you get through your toughest moments. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist's take. This is the part of the show where I'll give you my take on the strategies Dan suggests and tell you how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Daniel Howell in his strategies for getting through this night. Daniel Howell, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Very exciting. I am so excited to talk to you. I was fortunate enough to get my hands on an advanced copy of your of your book called You Will Get Through This Night. Mm-hmm. And I love this book for so many reasons. I'm a therapist and I write a lot about mental health. However, most of the mental health material that I create and that exists is sort of like in the long term. Like you should manage your diet. You should get exercise. That's helpful, but not in that moment of sheer panic or those moments of dark despair. What do you do in the moment? And even if you Google it, sometimes you'll come up with stuff that's like how to prevent depression. And you're like, no, it's too late. No, I'm, I'm in there right now, sis. Here we go. Where's the info? Yeah. So how did you get to the point where you decided to write this book that talks, you talk about some of the stuff about what to do the next day and Mm -hmm. what to do afterward, but a lot of your book talks about what to do right now when you are in that moment of, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I can make it through the night. What made you decide to do that? I mean, mental health is a universal human experience. It's not just something that people have and struggle with. We all have good mental health and bad mental health. And the shocking thing, and this is one of the realizations that I've had in the recent years of my life, is that there is so much that every single person should know about how their minds work, how their emotions work, and what they can do to improve their own mental health, not just in the long term, but as you say, just manage it moment to moment. And these seem like essential life skills and things that we all need to know. And I, throughout the period of 27 years of my life, had no idea about any of them. And it was terrible. So I thought, I want this to be a book that is simply the most practical and quick and easy. It just gives you the information that you need to know. And really, it's the book that I wish I had read earlier in my life. And my job, because you know I'm not the healthcare professional, I'm the funny guy from the internet, is to make it relatable and personal. So it's something that you want to read because I am someone that really struggles to go out there and find that information, as you say, to pick up those other books. Because for me, I don't know if anyone relates to this, after a really long day at work, the last thing I want to do sometimes is do homework. 
thinking about myself, it's a bit difficult. You don't want to confront these things. So I thought, right, how can I make mental health funny? How can I use myself as a relatable example of someone who's done literally every single thing wrong, just so people feel validated? And what are the tools that people need to know right now to lift themselves out of a bad mood? Because there's this myth that mental health is something mysterious and obscure that you can't really have any control over. But the truth is there are so many active decisions you can make to change how you feel. And there are tools you can utilize, as you're saying, such as trying to practice mindfulness, trying to be present by indulging in your senses that can snap you out of a moment where you feel like you're going to be at the victim of your emotions. So I think it's essential. And I wish it was something that was in my life when I needed it. Yeah, I wish so too. I wish that we all would have learned these things. Some of them are fairly basic things. You mm, get into strategies like breathing, mindfulness. Yeah, nobody ever breathing. talks about it. I'm like, I know how to breathe, right? right? No, breathing is this huge, profound thing. The Because I know I'm holding all this tension in my body and I'm a terrible breather. And that was a, a thing for me where it's like inhaling and exhaling, fundamental human experience. And yet it has a profound impact on how we feel that previously I didn't understand. So that's a great example. Right. It just gets you through the moment. So when you feel like I can't do this, I can't get through this night, it's just breathing. And we've all probably had those nights where you wake up in the middle of the night, you're worried sick about something, or you are feel like you're at the bottom of the barrel and you think, oh, what do I do now? But just paying attention to your breath, so mm-hmm. important. So there's three things that you talk about at the beginning of that chapter before you start to dive mm-hmm. into the strategies, what you said. And I want to run through them because I think they're super important. Number one was things always feel worse in the middle of the night. Yep. Amazing how that is at two o'clock in the morning. Something that maybe isn't going to feel so bad at noon the next day feels awful, right? That is a huge thing for me. I am such a nighttime warrior and not the warrior in the battle sense in that I'm panicking in lying in the fetal position in pitch darkness. (laughs) And I think it's something that a lot of people relate to and don't realize shouldn't be the case. And it's because during the day, we have all the distractions of everything around us. And we feel like, oh yeah, we're aware of the things in the back of our mind, the things that we're worried about, the pressures on us, but we can do something about them or just put them off for tomorrow. But the problem when your head hits the pillow and everything else falls away, it's just you and your mind is there is this reckoning moment of honesty with yourself where when there's nothing else, no excuses, no distractions, you go, this is the thing that I've been avoiding. This is the thing that I'm afraid of. And then it just jumps out at you. And that for me is something that ruined years of sleep (laughs) until I learned not just how to practice mindfulness, manage my breathing, indulge in my senses, you know, do some muscle relaxation, so many things I can do to change how I feel and snap myself out of it. But just what can I do in the day to have a better relationship with my mental health so I'm not haunted by these things in the night? Absolutely. And then you said number two was feeling bad now doesn't mean feeling bad forever. Yeah. I mean, when people are at those really dark times, you can really just feel like this is my life and that is not the case. Right. For some reason, especially at two in the morning when you're struggling with something, it feels like I'm going to feel this anxiety forever or this depression Mm -hmm. is never going to pass. I can't get through this. Uh, And then number three was you are not your thoughts. Can you expand on that one a little bit? It's this idea that we all go down these little rabbit holes where our mind will just surface this thought. And it's that thing that you're afraid of. It's that thing that you're worrying about. And you indulge in this fear and you just let it overcome you. And so many of us, we get taken over and we just live up in our heads. 
and the realization that actually, as biological machines, humans aren't that complicated. And our modern emotions and the things that we are stressed about come from these very, you know, primal evolutionary biological responses to just stress. And our body will send a signal like, I think you should be stressed about this. And your brain will turn it into this monster and present it in front of you. And what you have to do is look at it objectively, take a step back and just go, this thought is not a fact. It's not real. It's not the truth that I have to confront right now. It's just a signal that my brain sent. And I can either try to solve the problem differently. It's the idea that you don't have to become a prisoner of these thoughts. And that if you instead choose to step back and maybe reframe your thoughts to look at it from a more positive mindset, try and break down the problem so it's not so overwhelming, or even if it's too much, just put it to the side and instead focus on your breathing or on your mindfulness or being present in the moment, then you don't have to become a prisoner to these ideas that your brain just suggested. That's the thing. Our brains lies lies all the time, doesn't it? And in the, <laughs> All the time. In the moment, we think that whatever is going on in our heads is true. It's awful. It's going to last forever. And when we think I'm a bad person, I'm not good enough, that somehow that must be a fact. Yes, it's really... We all have this ability to self-sabotage that comes naturally to humans. And it's us trying to defend ourselves coming from a place of fear where we assume the worst and we are catastrophizing, trying to say what's the worst possible scenario because we're trying to protect ourselves from that. It's like a way of trying to problem solve the worst thing that could happen. But the problem is that seeps into how you think and feel and your decision making. And you really have to give yourself a constant reality check to go, hey, just because my brain said this is why I'm afraid of going to the party doesn't mean the literal worst thing that's possible is going to happen. Right. And to convince ourselves of that again at two, three in the morning, that's really tough to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But your book, and then it goes on to get into really specific exercises about breathing, about mindfulness, about how to think differently, Mm -hmm. how to feel better which I love because we all want those actionable steps. In fact, even in the book, you said there's some stories I could tell, but I'm going to hold off on the stories because I just want to get to the solutions. Yeah. I mean, as much as I would love to just talk about myself for hours, that's not why we're here in the book. You know, I'm here to just make it funny and relatable, but I didn't want this book to be 500 pages. I wanted it to be really as short as possible. This is just the stuff that you need to know right now. I get in, make the point and get out because I don't want this to be a book that someone spends ages reading, they pick it up, they put it down, they never quite finish it. I want someone to get through it and to come back to it as a resource whenever they need to be reminded of how to look after themselves. And I think that I got that out of the book that, okay, maybe you don't just read it cover to cover. It's going to be one of those books that you use as a guide to say, wait, what was that again? Or when I'm struggling two weeks from now and I don't remember what it was that that I learned in your book, you can go back and, and check it out. And so it's filled with exercises about what to do right now to get through this night. But then you talk about, okay, well, now what do you do the next day? Getting through the night, I saw as sort of a way to deal with your immediate feelings. And then the next day, it's Mm -hmm. about problem solving. So day getting through the night is about saying, how do I solve how I feel about this? But then the next day, it's all, how do I solve what's going on in my environment? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we wanted it to be built in a way that 
has this foundation of knowledge, imagining that someone knows nothing about mental health or where to even start. And the first part is having those tools so you can be a first responder to the crisis that goes on in your head so that when you are in that moment of desperation, you know what to do. But the second part, which we named tomorrow, exactly as you said, is about when you feel like, okay, now I want to make a change to my lifestyle so that I can start doing things that as time goes forward in the future, I will just find that my baseline mental health is in a much better place because there are so many things in our day-to-day lives that none of us realize have this profound impact on our mental health. And we go through all of the categories that are things that any of us can look at in regard to our circumstances, try it out. And if it makes us feel healthier or happier, hey, good job. And some of them are really basic, right? Like eating, sleeping, moving your body. But yet, when we are in a dark place, we forget those things and we stop doing them. Yeah, all these things that come so naturally to us, or even that we just do on autopilot without any knowledge of how they can profoundly act, uh, influence how we think and feel. And it's, you know, we think about diet usually just as, oh, I want to have a six-pack like that celebrity on the magazine. But no, really, it's about how does it make you feel not just from a, how is the nutrition that you're putting into your body affecting how you feel physically, but how is your relationship with food in terms of your body image and what you feel pressured to eat or diet? How is that affecting how you feel? And instead of basing our relationship with food about how we want to look, we should revolve it around how we feel and then we'll be much healthier and happier. And that's one example of something that my whole life I've been doing on autopilot not even stopping for a moment to think about how it makes us feel. And what I encourage throughout this book is for people to do these mini science experiments on themselves where they try something out and then they stop and they question, how did that make me feel? Because it is all about the choices that we make in every area of our lives and learning how to work with ourselves. Because if we go through life on autopilot, not questioning things, we could be missing out on small changes that can have a profound impact on how we feel every single day. Uh, I love that you said that. It's something that we've talked about on this show before, but I've talked about in my therapy office all the time. Let's do some experiments. Maybe waking up early... Maybe waking up early and going running in the morning is good for your mental health, but maybe it's not because maybe you need more sleep. I don't know, but we won't know until we try. So we try experimenting. And it's amazing how many people are really quick to say, well, that won't work before they even try. Mm-hmm. And it's that thing where people are afraid to try new things. If you go into it with the right attitude, thinking, even if this doesn't work, I'm doing it in an effort to feel better, then you can have fun and you can reward yourself with the knowledge that you're trying new things. And you know that example was a pretty good one for me because I always said, hey, I hate jogging. I hate exercise. It doesn't make me feel better. I feel sad. I spent a week just doing a journal asking how I felt every day after a run. And guess what? I felt less worrisome and I had more energy afterwards. So even as much as I wanted to say I hated the exercise and did nothing for me, I had concrete evidence that when I got out and I resentfully put on those shoes and came back all sweaty and salty half an hour later, I was like, okay, darn, I guess I had a better day. I like that. What are some other examples of habit changes you've had to make or experiments you've tried, things to figure out, all right, what makes my mental health its best? Yeah, I mean, there's two that are very related to uh, the little devices that we keep in our pockets every day, which people might find quite relatable. One was sleep, which is I have the obviously very bad habit of looking at my phone every night before I go to bed. One, because I'm an addict and I just can't quit the social media and the news. But 
One, having the really bright blue phone screen in your face sends your circadian rhythms into spiral because they have no idea what time of day it is. <laughs> They're trying to keep you awake as much as possible. Whereas reading that nice beige book, that'll help lull you into sleep, but also the information overload. It's just too much stimulation for a brain that's trying to wind down. And for me, that was like, I need to kick it. I need to just read before I go to bed. I need to do something physical that isn't shining this scary, stressful little blue thing in my face all the time. And that'll make a difference. And the other in regards to social life was just my relationship with how I use social media. Because all of us these days feel this pressure to be part of the conversations and the community that happen on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. But we don't step back to think about how do I feel after I close the app. And for me and Instagram, it was, I'm following all these celebrities. How is this making me feel? Am I just comparing myself to them in a way that is really just quite toxic and it's making me feel bad? If I just follow my friends and accounts that make me laugh and smile, you know, cute little videos of ducks being rescued. Every time I go onto Instagram, I go, hey, that improved my day. I'm going on Twitter. I'm reading all the politics. I'm reading all the people shouting at each other the news. It's depressing. It's stressful. It's angry. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to mute some people. I'm going to unfollow some things. I'm going to make it people that make me laugh, my friends who I'm interested in, people that post things that inspire me. And I curated that content to make it something that had a positive impact on my life rather than what I was doing before, which is just following what I felt like I needed to do. And then it made me feel bad. I'm glad that you could say that as somebody that has billions of YouTube views and millions of followers <laughs> that you still set limits and you encourage other people to do. That's important, but yet hard to do. It's easy to say. So many people say that they do that. Mm -hmm. Do you have a concrete rule like when it comes to bedtime? Is there a time you shut your phone off or do you have a rule about how to stop looking at it before you go to sleep? I just had to get concrete and say half an hour before I go to bed, I'm just not going to look at the phone because I quickly realized that it was just giving me that information overload where if I was looking at what my friends were up to, it gave me that social conversation. If I was looking at the news, I was worrying about things. If I was looking at celebrities, it was making me compare them to myself. And it was just too much going on in my head. And I thought, nope, I know I want to, but I'm going to be strict with myself. <laughs> I'm going to do this consistently. I'm just not going to look. And it's that example which is stressed throughout the book of things can be difficult, but if you commit to a routine, eventually it becomes second nature. The hardest part is starting. And if you're a serial procrastinator like me, even you know, getting that first foot in the door can be a real struggle. And the start is always the most painful part. But if you just commit to it, eventually after a few days, it'll be second nature to you. And then you'll go, oh my God, did I spend all of that time feeling bad when I could have been doing this? And hey, tomorrow can be the day that we all do that. And then how else do you set your life up to stay as healthy as possible? So you live this lifestyle that I would imagine a lot of people on the outside would think is a dream come true. <laughs> Yet, <laughs> yeah. I would think it's more challenging than it looks to stay mentally healthy when you're always sort of on stage. You don't have a set schedule, mm -hmm, I don't think. Mm -hmm. And yet you have all this pressure because people are watching what you're doing. They're listening to what you say all the time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm a I, I'm a self-employed person that stays inside a lot. And I think that's become a relatable experience for a lot of people around the world in the last year. And there is a huge element of how your environment 
impacts how you feel, not just from the space around you and making sure that it works for you and that you're comfortable and it doesn't encourage bad habits and making sure that the objects and the photos that you see kind of inspire good memories rather than having these things that may inspire negative things to pop up. But simply making it work for you if you're working from home. I'm someone that would wake up in the morning in my pajamas, go, oh, I feel quite comfortable and go, hey, if no one's going to work, there's a pandemic, I can stay like this all day. And then I get nothing done. And then I beat myself up for not being productive. I feel really guilty. And the schedule goes out the window. So you have to be strict with yourself. You have to go, no, 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 I'm going to get into work mode. I'm going to put on some trousers or at least sweatpants from the waist down and then a shirt up if you're doing a video call, as long as you look professional on the call. And it's about saying, I am going to work until this time and then I'm going to turn my mind off because you need to rest. Otherwise, you're just not going to be good at what you do. And for me, as someone who's my life is my work, everything is 24-7, it's all connected to the internet. I have to be so strict with setting boundaries with myself so I don't just spiral into oblivion because I feel this pressure to just do stuff all the time, which I think for a lot of people who have recently adjusted to how they live and work from home, it's like, well, you know, I used to leave the office and that was a good switch off for my mind. Whereas now the office is haunting me everywhere I go and we have to go, hey, what, you know what? I'm going to turn off my work phone after this time. I'm not going to answer that email. And you have to set these boundaries with yourself. I can imagine that's tough, but you're right. So many of us have learned that when your laptop is just sitting right there in your living room and staring at you all the time, it's hard to not be Mm -hmm. working or it's hard to not feel like you have to answer an email no matter what time of day it comes in. It's really tough. And that's all of my friends as well. And I hope that all of my friends feel personally attacked when they read my book because they are the people that when we go out to a meal and they go go ding, ding, ding on their phone and just check in the emails, I'm like, put your phone down. You are ruining my hot dog. (laughs) What made you come out in the first place to talk about mental health? You're known as the funny guy online. You make these fun videos and suddenly Mm. you come out and say, hey, you guys, I've struggled with depression. For me, it was a story of someone who hit that wall where I was running from these issues that I needed to deal with for so long that it got to a point where I just couldn't keep going any further. And I think anyone in their life that has prioritized their career or their family or anything that's important to them and put issues that they know they have to work on to better themselves on the back burner for a later date, you can only do that for so long and it's not sustainable. And for me, there were huge issues to do with my self-esteem, my mindset, my relationship with my sexuality, that were these huge obstacles that I had to overcome. But even on the lifestyle point, I knew there were so many things I could be doing better, but I was just like, not today, not today. I'm tired, not right now. This isn't important because I'm going to prioritize my career and one day it will happen. And then it got to that point where I just felt like on one element, I can't function anymore until I confront this. And actually for me as a creative person, I felt like I couldn't create anymore until I overcame this obstacle because it was so big as this elephant in the room that I had to finally tackle it. But also my relationship with my following as a creator it gave me this perspective that I don't think I would have otherwise had in life, that I would share stories from my life, things that weren't as personal as talking about my mental health. And I would get letters and messages from people saying, hey, I really resonated with this thing that you said, and it means a lot to me. I feel like I know you. And that thing that you made, it made me feel this way. And when I was thinking about my own mental health, I thought, 
on one side, I just need to be honest with these people about what I'm going through because I almost felt like a fraud sitting, trying to, trying to hide this side of me that I was struggling with and just pretending like everything was okay when that's not a realistic portrayal of how life works. But also I felt like, do I not owe it to people? Is this not an opportunity to do something good in the world? So I decided to make that video and I will be honest, it was, it was scary. It was very scary. I can imagine. And what kind of a response did you get? I was braced for the worst. And this comes from my upbringing, really. Um, I had quite a, a tough time. I had a lot of bullying. And it gave me this mindset to always expect the worst in people in order to protect myself. And especially when you're talking about uh, men and their relationship with vulnerability and you know admitting their faults and asking for help and just being on the internet, you know, making yourself vulnerable on the internet can be kind of scary sometimes. We all know what the internet's like. And it was the complete opposite of what I thought. People were accepting. They were kind to me. It opened this door that I had never experienced in my life where I finally felt like I could have an authentic connection with people. And I got these messages that were saying, hey, I didn't really understand what depression was. And now I do, thanks to your example. And that means a lot to me. Maybe people were saying, this is something that my mom went through. This is something that my friend is going through. And now I understand them. Other people said, this is me. And I just hadn't seen someone articulate it before. And now I know that I'm not supposed to feel this way. And I need to ask for help. So it was just so amazing to see the impact that sharing your story and being honest can have just with the people around you. And that's something that any one of us can do just by talking to our friends and our neighbors and our family and our colleague about what we're going through and just asking them how they're doing creatively for me, it was an example that actually being vulnerable and telling your truth, it can not only make you happier, but it just it makes people more connected to you. And that profoundly changed how I look at my career. Whereas before, you know, it's, it's a comedy thing. People put up this wall, they make these jokes as a way to create some distance and to protect themselves. Whereas I thought, actually, if I let the wall down, maybe I'm funnier, maybe I'm realer, and maybe I connect to people on a deeper level and I used to be afraid of that, whereas now I've been encouraged. And that is an amazing transformation for me. Interesting. We talked to a comedian not too long ago, Paul Gilmartin, and he struggled, oh, yeah. struggled with depression. And one of his big things is talking about vulnerability as well. Do you think mm -hmm. in terms of being funny, I'm sure a lot of your followers were surprised, right? As you say, they didn't know what depression looked like. We have this image in our head that depressed people stay in bed. They cry all the time. Here you are, funny, you're making videos, you're doing cool things. And then, of course, mm -hmm. people are like, wait, he's depressed? It's, you know, people can function and show absolutely no signs that they're struggling with mental health. It really is a silent killer that anyone on the surface can put on a smile, they can be professional, they can be funny, they can go on a stage and crack jokes and make everyone have a great time for hours but what they're going on on the inside, it's completely different. And it's, you know, being depressed, it's not just being sad. It's something that completely takes over your life and your energy levels and your appetite and just your ability to even enjoy things anymore. And it was definitely that surprise that people said, I really thought that you were doing great. It seemed like your career was really successful. It seemed like you were having fun. You were telling these jokes. And it's just a wonderful example of how you really need to ask how people are a second time to get to that deeper level. You go to your friend, how are you feeling? No, really, how are you feeling? Because our default human reaction is just to go, I'm fine. 
Ah, uh, I like that because it is. And so often we don't know how other people are really feeling and we never get past mm-hmm. that surface level. I'm great. How about now? How are you doing these days now that you've uh, talked more about it and you've come forward with this book? Yeah, it's been a real journey for me. On the, the, the long-term side, I've been going to therapy. I've been analyzing what my relationship with my own emotions is, how I treat myself, how I talk to myself. And it's been not just a lifestyle adjustment for me to go, okay, I need to get a good night's sleep. I need to have relationships with people that can be there to support me. I can master these tools of you know being mindful, correcting my thoughts. But for me, it was a much deeper journey to just look at myself in the mirror and talk to myself in a fair and reasonable way. Because I had to realize that if you are realistically optimistic and you have a more fair mindset in life when you're dealing with yourself and your own standards for yourself, you are more likely to succeed and be happy and to manifest that positivity. Whereas if you go through life being defensive and cynical, then you're not putting anything positive out there into the world that's kind of come back to you. And that has been a difficult band-aid for me to rip off. But several years later, I think I've shown that it is possible. And that's really what the third part of your book is about. You get into more about the feelings, the way we think about ourselves, sort of the mm. changes that come from within. The second part's about the environment, but this is really the part about how do we change ourselves, how we think, how we feel, how we behave. It's the hardest stuff to get into because it's not a little thing you can do to snap yourself out of a mood. It's not a little thing you can try to change your lifestyle. It's thinking, what has formed me as a person? What are the things that have informed my way of responding emotionally. Why do I react to certain things in a certain way? If something happened to me, how would I think about something? And just what are your values for the entire world? I mean, for me, authenticity was a huge thing where I went on this whole journey where I was like, you know, I need to do what my family want. I need to get a good career. I'm going to go be a lawyer. I'm going to go apply to law school. And I was kidding myself. That was not happening. And it did not take very long for me to just go, if I go down this path, I'm going to be profoundly unhappy. And it's those kind of really, there can be quite intense, uncomfortable conversations. And they're not the things that are so easily fixed. Depending on your circumstances, you may just acknowledge the issue, but know that you can't do anything. If you're a young person, you might think, well, you know, I can't change the environment that I'm living in. I can't change what I'm doing with my life. Maybe because you've got a family to support, you think, well, there are certain things that I can't change right now. But if at the very least you are honest with yourself and you acknowledge these things, then one day you can plan to tackle them, which I think is hard, but it's incredibly important and something that nobody should give up on. We should always pursue the things that will make us really happy. Well, I appreciate that you've made your journey public to show people, okay, here's what I'm working on and (laughs) taking us along for the ride to see, okay, well, what's going to happen next? Uh, In a really honest and authentic way, I think that gives a lot of other people hope too, to know, okay, if if Dan is doing these things, if he's working on this, then, (laughs) then how do I do it in my own life? Last question for you would be, what's your words of wisdom for somebody who's struggling? Maybe somebody who isn't yet getting help, somebody who's in a tough place, but at the same time thinks that they don't have the energy to change their life or that they don't have the wherewithal to make a difference. Absolutely. I would say that that person has been me several times throughout my life. And the biggest lie I told myself was that this is just how things are. And to, you know, build a worldview that was like, this is what the world is like, when in reality, 
not only does time change everything and the circumstances that you may feel are confining you in this situation will inevitably drift with time, but you as a person have the ability to change how you think and feel. Mental health is not this mysterious fog. We are not born a certain way. We are not broken. We can all learn ways to manage our thoughts and feelings, make changes to our lifestyle, ask the bigger questions about why we are the way we are and what is a more healthy outlook to have on life. And you have the power. We all have the power to change these things. And sometimes it can feel stressful to think I don't have an excuse. Maybe there's some hard work to do ahead of me. But when you tackle that hurdle, you will be healthier and happier on the other side. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and for writing this book. I hope all of our listeners will go pick up a copy of You Will Get Through This Night because it's filled with wonderful words of wisdom, not just for tonight or tomorrow, but for our mental health in the days to come as well. So thank you so much for writing it and sharing your story with all of us. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate all the work that you do as well. And it gives me hope for the future. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is a part of the show where I'll break down a few of Daniel's suggestions and share how you can apply them to your own life. Number one, pay attention to your breath. Daniel talked a lot about paying attention to your breathing. It's a quick and easy strategy that can help you get through the night when you don't think you can stand feeling so bad for even one more second. There are many science-backed strategies that show how helpful it is to simply pay attention to the way that you're breathing. You might do a breathing exercise, like smell the pizza. If you're interested in hearing what that is, go check out episode number 24, and I'll walk you through a quick exercise that will calm your brain and your body. You can also just count slowly as you inhale and as you exhale. Taking a deep breath into your belly, not your chest, can relieve some physical tension and help you relax just a bit. Focusing on your breathing also gives your mind something to focus on for a minute and helps you stop paying attention to the negative thoughts or unhelpful emotions that you're experiencing. So the next time you feel like you can't tolerate feeling bad or you're going through what feels like the longest night of your life, pause and pay attention to your breath. Number two, don't look at your phone 30 minutes before you go to bed. Daniel makes a living from people watching his online content, yet even he encourages people to stop scrolling 30 minutes before bedtime. And he practices this in his own life. If he can do it, you can do it. There's tons of research that shows looking at screens of any kind like TVs, laptops, or smartphones, right before bed, interferes with the melatonin in your brain. Your brain gets confused about whether it's day or night because the bright light sends a signal that says, maybe it's not time to wind down yet. But it's not just the bright light from your phone that might be the problem. Scrolling through social media or the news can create a lot of anxiety. And that might be what keeps you awake at night too. Researchers have also found that people sleep better when they don't keep their phones in the bedroom when they sleep. Studies show just putting the phone in another room reduces anxiety. But just the thought of keeping your phone somewhere else might cause a spike in your anxiety right now. But try it as an experiment and see what you think after just a few nights. In the meantime, commit to not looking at your phone 30 minutes before you go to sleep. That can make a big difference to your overall well-being. And number three, be vulnerable and tell your truth. Daniel said he often hid his depression behind a funny exterior. But it wasn't until he got real and started sharing his struggles that he felt like he was finally being his true self. And he felt a lot better. It's scary to talk about your struggles or tell anyone that you're having a problem. What if other people dismiss you or roll their eyes or even judge you? 
But when you share your truth, it's actually much more likely that other people will share how they can relate to what you're going through. I can attest to this personally. My TEDx talk has over 16 million views. In it, I share how I struggled with mental strength. You know how many negative emails I received in the last six years? Maybe five total out of more than 16 million viewers. And you know how many positive emails I've received? Probably thousands. I'm sure Daniel helped a lot of people by sharing his story, and I suspect that's one of the reasons why he wrote this book. He realized how much people needed to hear more about the strategies that can help them when they're feeling the same way. Daniel also encourages people to ask others how they're doing twice. The first time, you'll likely get the polite answer. But when you ask again later in the conversation and you make it clear that you really want to know, you might get the real answer. And that might encourage them to open up and talk about their feelings, which could be really helpful to someone who's struggling. So those are three of Daniel's strategies that I highly recommend. Pay attention to your breath. Take a break from your phone 30 minutes before you go to sleep. And be vulnerable and share your truth. If you want to hear more of Daniel's strategies, pick up a copy of his book, You Will Get Through This Night. It's filled with actionable strategies you can start applying during your hardest times. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.